The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. The fact that Ukraine can be a democracy and hopefully successful democracy and, and economically successful country presents a threat to the authoritarian regimes in Moscow and in Minsk and Belarus of the sort that no NATO would ever actually present. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Over the past year, this podcast has focused quite a few episodes on Ukraine. We've heard from Luke and Wei, Jessica Pisano, Olga Onik, and Andrei Kolikov. But one person that I've wanted to talk to for a very long time is Sirhi Ploki. Sirhi is a professor of Ukrainian history at Harvard University and the director of the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute. He's written many books on Ukrainian history. The most well-known is probably The Gates of Europe, but my personal favorite is The Origins of the Slavic Nations. He now has a new book called The Russo-Ukrainian War, The Return of History. Now, I don't want to say it's the first detailed account of this war, but it is the first one from a scholar that I recognize and respect. Our conversation covers the history that led to the war and the causes of the war itself. We also touch on the additional complication that nuclear power has given to this war. If you like this episode, please support the podcast as a monthly donor on Patreon or as a premium subscriber. You can now access the growing library of bonus episodes on pretty much any platform. This week's bonus episode features Christian Veltzel in a conversation about the legacy of legendary political scientist Ronald Engelhardt. It's part of a series on the influential thinkers of democratic thought that is only available for premium subscribers and supporters on Patreon. Please click the link in the show notes to sign up. Like always, you can leave questions or comments to me directly at jkempf at democracyparadox.com. But for now, this is my conversation with Sirhi Ploki. Sirhi Ploki, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Well, it's a pleasure to be on your show. Well, I loved your book. I thought that the Russo-Ukrainian War, The Return of History, is such a great first edition to discuss and to better understand what is happening over in Ukraine right now. I mean, we're already seeing some of the first initial books about Zelensky and about reinterpreting Russia in a lot of ways, but I think this actually put the entire war into better context. And of course, there's going to have to be a new edition one day in the future because the war is not over. But I'd like to start with a quote from your book. 
You write, on Ukraine's part, it is first and foremost a war of independence, a desperate attempt on behalf of a new nation that emerged from the ruins of the Soviet collapse to defend its right to existence. Obviously, Ukraine has been independent from the Soviet Union for over 30 years. So can you help us understand why we should think of this as a war of independence? Um. First of all, I can't agree with you more that this is one of the first attempts to, to understand this war in the context, in historical context, geopolitical context, and the war is not over. Certainly our thinking, our understanding of what is happening in front of our eyes is just starting, is just beginning. But at the same time, as a historian, and as probably any historian of the region, I know that this war of Ukrainians for their independence didn't start in February of 2022. It started in February of 2014 with the Russian takeover, military takeover of the building of the Crimean parliament and the seat of the Crimean government at that time. And you can look back into the history of Ukraine during the Second World War. The resistance to the Soviet rule lasted in Western Ukraine all the way into the early 1950s. The red banner of the Soviet Union was over Reichstag in May of 1945. And three, four, five, six years after that, people were still fighting in the woods of Ukraine. The declaration of Ukrainian independence that brought independence to the country in August and then December of 1991, that was the fifth attempt to declare independence of the country in the 20th century. The story starts in 1918, and again with Ukrainian independence and Russian attack on Ukraine. So it's a long story, and it's a story of not just of Ukraine's fight for independence. It's also a story of disintegration of the Russian Empire. It started around the same time when the disintegration of the Ottoman Empire happened during World War I. Austria-Hungary was wiped out, disappeared from the face of Europe and Earth in general. And this war is one of a number of wars of the Russian and Soviet succession. Before that, in 2008, we had Russo-Georgian War. In the 1990s, the two Chechen Wars, the Russo-Chechen Wars. So as a historian, any way you look at that, either at attempts of Ukraine to gain independence or at what happens as the result of the fall of the Russian Empire or the fall of the Soviet Union, the arrows are pointing in the same direction. And it's in the direction of the story that in many ways really starts with the American Revolution. That's the revolt of people who want to be free from the empire. And I'm in Boston area, so the area with Plymouth, with the Boston Tea Party, so these parallels come to me most naturally. So you said that the attempts for Ukrainian independence began in 1914, but I've read from your many different books on Ukrainian history that Ukrainian identity, its political identity, began to develop much earlier than that. Can you help us understand when Ukrainian political identity really began to develop as something that was uniquely Ukrainian? Well, you go to Kiev and you see the most prized architectural jewels of the city, like St. Sophia Cathedral, like Kiev and Kiev's monastery. They come from medieval times. They come from the times of Kiev and Rus, when Kiev was the capital of a huge 
huge East European empire that included partially lands of today's Belarus, partially lands of today's Russia. And Ukrainians certainly trace their origins to that state. You look at the Ukrainian coat of arms, this is a trident symbol of the Kievan princess of the medieval period. So the origins are there, but what you see after that, it's a long period of non-state existence of the Ukrainians, of the peoples that settled the land. The centers of power were somewhere else. For a short period of time in the 17th century, you see that the Cossacks established their headquarters in Kiev and created a Western dependent and then autonomous state. But other than that, it's mostly the land that was ruled by other empires, from Russian to the Habsburg to the Ottoman Empire. And Ukrainian identity of today really traces its origins very much to the period of the Cossack Wars. So Ukraine, the name itself, the most proper translation would be frontier. So the traditional understanding of the American history, the American spirit as created by the moving frontier, Again, think also about Ukraine. This is the country that was created by the moving frontier because Cossacks are the other product of that moving frontier, moving into the steppes. And the Ukrainians today historically associate themselves with the Cossack and the free spirit. To be less maybe romantic because the Cossack mythology is romantic mythology. What you still see in Ukraine is really this distrust of the government as a whole. We know that also from the American history. That's how U.S. comes into existence. And for better or for worse, the traits of American culture, American political culture, continue still today. Well, for Ukrainians, every state in the last few decades was actually a foreign state. So in that sense, what you see in Ukraine is this tradition for self-organization, is a tradition of really the virtue is not serving the state. (laughs) The virtue is to undermine the state. But what happened since the start of this war in 2014? Very important development in Ukrainian history. The, The civic society that was traditionally very strong, that revolved two revolutions, the Orange Revolution, the Revolution of Dignity. Since 2014, it discovered the state as a partner, and state discovered society as a partner. And now they're fighting together, and we see that sort of coalition. It's very difficult to crack for a country like Russia, where society was always subordinated to the state. For Russians, it's very difficult to imagine themselves existing outside of the state and not in the service of the state. So that's where the big, big, big difference exists, not just in history, but also in the political culture that was produced by that history. Do you think that kind of political culture is a big part of how Ukraine and Russia have been shaped by ideas of democracy and autocracy? Obviously, autocracy in Russia, but something much closer to democracy in Ukraine. Yes, uh, absolutely. In one of the chapters of the book, it's called Democracy and Autocracy. I'm trying to explain to myself and to the readers a sort of a paradox that I certainly lived through. When you look at the end of the Cold War, and when you look at the images coming from the region in 1990, 91, and then later, one of the most prominent images is Boris Yeltsin, the leader of Russia, standing on the tank, defending democracy in front of what in Moscow is known as White House. It's a much bigger White House in Moscow than it is in Washington, D.C., but that was the building of the Russian parliament. And a little bit more than two years later, 
the same Boris Yeltsin orders now not Soviet but Russian tanks to fire at the same building, at the same parliament, and then rewrites the constitution. And from there, it's all downhill in terms of democracy. The constitution of Boris Yeltsin created foundations for this enormous power accumulated by Vladimir Putin today. And Ukraine around that time was not really a darling of anyone who was particularly interested in democracy, ruled by the relatively conservative elite, many of them former communists. But once the Ukrainian elite was trying to emulate what Yeltsin was doing in Moscow, it was getting one protest after another. I mentioned already two revolutions, the Orange Revolution of 2004, the Revolution of Dignity of 2013-2014. And these are just bigger events. There would be mass manifestations. The people would actually refuse to accept any sort of violation of their rights by the government, especially violence. The events of 2013 started student protests, which have relatively little support from the society as a whole. But once the police is there and beats up the students, immediately hundreds of thousands of Kievans actually show on the streets. And the revolution that started by students as Euro-revolution for joining European community becomes the revolution of dignity, because just people in Ukraine would not accept what people in Russia, it looks like, in mass accept as a norm. So one of the chapters discusses why this is the case. And as a historian, the most natural place for me to look for that explanation is exactly in history. The relations between society and state is one of those issues. Another one is that Ukraine, as I mentioned, earlier came into existence uh, on the ruins of at least three empires. All these different parts of Ukraine had different historical traditions and trajectories. And at the end, they realized very early on that for country to stay together, they have to talk to each other, they have to negotiate. None of these groups were strong enough to establish control over the state and the state institutions, which were weak. In any case, I keep going back to the parallels with the American history, think about the first colonies, and none of them is strong and powerful enough to impose their will or their religion over others. And out of that comes a form of democratic government. Messy, maybe not always effective, but in the long run, more effective than the authoritarian challengers to that particular state or that particular culture. One of the challenges that I notice people have in referring to Ukraine as democratic or thinking of this as a war between democracy and autocracy is that many of the democratic indicators still rate Ukraine as very undemocratic still. It's got a long way to be able to go to be able to progress to what we consider to be a liberal democracy. VDEM calls it an electoral autocracy. Freedom House still calls it partly free. But what I'm hearing from you is that the big difference between Ukraine and Russia is its political culture, that Ukraine is always striving to discover democracy and to become democratic, whereas Russians have so far identified with strong leaders and have been more comfortable with autocracy. So is that a fair point to make? Well, it is. And I would say that basically what you do with any sort of ranking, you try to rank either individual or city or country in a particular category among their peers. 
So you don't put together the city of Cambridge in the same category as New York and then try to, <laughs> to try to draw particular conclusions from there. So you look at Ukraine really in its neighborhood, which turned out to be a tough neighborhood. And Ukraine, one of very few countries that actually emerged from the collapse of the Soviet Union as an independent state. Culturally and historically closest counterparts to Ukraine are Russia and Belarus, which are both run by, till recently, Lukashenko in Belarus was known as the last dictator of Europe. But that was before the pandemic. Now the status of the last dictator is probably not appropriate anymore. There is a bunch of competitors running around competing for that position. So exactly, you look at the neighbors, you look at the societies that are coming from the same sort of experience, experience of the Soviet rule, experience before that of the imperial rule. And Ukraine, from that point of view, stands out, especially given the fact that it's the second largest post-Soviet republic in terms of the population, in terms of the economic output. That's how it was. And that fact alone, the fact that Ukraine can be a democracy and hopefully a successful democracy and, and economically successful country, presents a threat to the authoritarian regimes in Moscow and in Minsk in Belarus of the sort that no NATO would ever actually present, because that undermines the legitimacy of their regimes, because they're based on the argument that, well, given our history, we really can't function otherwise. If not us, maybe you don't like us, but the alternative is chaos. And Ukraine suggests that, okay, that there can be other alternatives. And from that point of view, this is the major, major challenge to the legitimacy of autocratic regimes in the region. So you've already mentioned that the revolution of dignity was an enormous turning point in Ukraine. Do you feel that the election of Vladimir Zelensky was another turning point towards democracy? The election of Vladimir Zelensky was just next step rather than a turning point. Maybe I should have said inflection point rather than turning point? Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean, but I basically want to distinguish two events and two developments. First, the election of Volodymyr Zelensky, and then emergence of Volodymyr Zelensky as the war leader of the country on the 24th of February of 2022. And the election of Zelensky was a further step towards democracy, democratization, fight against corruption, and so on and so forth. So the movement that started in 2013, 2014. So next step in that direction. But the war, the all-out war, really produced a completely different situation. Demand for a sort of a different type of leader, and Zelensky really rose to that challenge. And uh, when people compare him today with uh, Churchill with iPhone, I think there is only a slight exaggeration. And the exaggeration is about the power of the iPhone, not about the power of Zelensky. So you already mentioned that the war really began in 2014. Can we kind of just wind the clock back? to before Russia got involved in the Donbass, before Russia seized Crimea. How much of a difference was there between public sentiment in the Donbass and Crimea and the rest of Ukraine? At the uh, Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University, where I and my colleagues work on a number of projects, one of those projects is called MAPA, Digital Atlas of Ukraine. 
And uh, given the original differences in Ukraine, we, among many other things, we were trying also to look at the polling data and how it changes over time and what is happening geographically. And what we noticed was that generally, if the events of the Crimea and Donbass would happen on their own, from within, as opposed to something that was provoked or brought by the Russian aggression, the time for that to happen was 1999. So that was the moment when there was the maximum number of respondents who were saying that they actually would prefer Ukraine and Russia either unite or basically be independent countries, but basically with open borders. But since 1999, the support for that option was falling and support for the consolidation of the Ukrainian state was growing. In Crimea, the last polling data that was conducted under three circumstances, it was early February of 2014. The takeover started late in February. And um, at that time, close to 40% of the uh, Crimean people in the Crimea were in favor, actually, of no borders, of so-called porous borders between Russia and Ukraine. That's not a good signal for the unity of the country, for the strength of the identity, and so on and so forth. In Crimea, those numbers were the highest. I don't remember now the, the rest of Ukraine, but Crimea was really an outlier there. But it's certainly not the same as to say that the majority of the Crimeans were for basically separating from Ukraine or joining Russia or something like that. We really don't know what the attitudes were because the Hesley Cold referendum the next month in March of 2014, no independent observers were allowed. So the arguments that this percent or that percent supported the Crimea separating from Ukraine and joining Russia, we just don't have data for that. The latest data that we have comes from February, a few weeks before the start of those events, and the numbers of those in the Crimea who actually wanted no borders between Ukraine and Russia was 40%. That's the only data that we have. Something that surprised me in your book was how you discussed the interest in Russia to be able to take back Crimea that dated long before 2014. Can you talk a little bit about that history in terms of the post-Soviet context? Yes. What you have is that Crimea was and is the only region of Ukraine where the ethnic Ukrainians didn't constitute the majority. The majority was not even the Crimean Tatars. The majority was the Russians. This is a classic case of settler colonialism and the really early militarization of the Crimean Peninsula because it became the base of the Russian Navy in the mid-19th century after Russia's loss in the Crimean War. It became a place, sort of a holy place of the Russian Empire, mourning the heroes of the defense of Sevastopol and so on and so forth. So Crimea, from that point of view, already took a very important symbolic meaning in the Russian historical mythology. And then it was translated into the Soviet mythology as well. So you look in practical terms, Crimea is a peninsula. All peninsulas depend on mainlands. So if you look at the number of tourists who were going to the Crimea, most of them were coming from Ukraine. 
But symbolically, for Russians as far away as Siberia, Crimea was a symbol of military glory and sacrifice and so on and so forth. And strategically for the Russian government, it was important one. So Crimea was part of the Russian Federation before 1954, and then transferred from Russian Federation to Ukraine. The reason why it ended up to be part of the Russian Federation was that the majority of the population was Russians. That's how the territories of the Union Republics were defined. But it was transferred for geographic and economic reasons. As I said, Crimea is a peninsula. All peninsulas depend on mainland. Mainland happened to be Ukraine. So when the Crimea was lagging behind in terms of the post-World War II reconstruction, it was difficult logistically for it to provide any supply, either food or construction materials. Plus, Stalin deported more than 200,000 Crimean Tatars who knew how to work on the land there, deported them to Kazakhstan, accusing them of collaborating with the Nazi Germany. So Crimea was an economic trouble. And Nikita Khrushchev, who at that time was the rising star in the Soviet leadership, proposed to transfer Crimea to Ukraine and in that sense score a point in his competition for power in Moscow because he was solving one of the big problems for Moscow. And really, indeed, a lot of good things happened after Crimea was attached to Ukraine. One of them was the water from Dnipro was actually through the channels brought to the Crimea and became the foundation for the development of Crimean agriculture. So there were ethnic, political, geopolitical, economic, and other reasons of why first Crimea was transferred, but also why then Russia believed that Crimea belongs to Russia. The goal in 2014 was not taking over the Crimea. The goal was to stop Ukraine's drift toward the West, because Ukraine was just about to sign association agreement with the European Union which would not allow Ukraine then to join Eurasian Union. But once that attempt to stop Ukraine's drift ended in failure in the revolution of dignity, then the, the sort of a consolation prize was, okay, we will take over the Crimea, which has historically huge importance for Russia, which has Russian ethnic majority, where we can move the troops, we can mobilize a fair number of supporters, and so on and so forth. So the annexation of the territory came as a result of the failure of the Plan A, which was just taken over entire Ukraine. The same thing happened in 2022. Plan A, take over Kiev, kill Zelensky, put Ukraine into the Russian camp. Once it failed, then the annexation scenario was reenacted again, now with regards to the areas north of the Crimea and southern Ukraine. And that's where the main battlefield is today. So to dig in deeper into the full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia, do you feel that the invasion of Ukraine was an inevitability or a choice, a specific choice that Putin actually made? Looking back at the origins of this war, you certainly see a lot of factors that lead to it and can explain the overall decision that was made at that time. But was it inevitable? No. It was a decision made by Vladimir Putin. 
My understanding is that it was a decision that was made by him with very little consultation, which allows one to define this war as Putin's war. But it is also a Russian war. There is no way around that. From what we know, from what we gathered, the majority of the population is still supporting the war. The number of those who support drops, especially when the mass mobilization started. But overall, this is a society that is really very sick with the imperial sort of disease. And Putin and his group certainly uses this disease. It doesn't want to heal it. It basically uses it to achieve own longevity as a regime and achieve geopolitical goals. But the story of Russian revolutions is a very, very interesting one, that you look at the revolutions of the 20th century. The revolution of 1905 comes in the middle of the Russo-Japanese war when the war was not going Russian way. You look at the revolution of 1917, the revolution is happening in the middle of World War I as the result of the Russian defeats on the front. You look at Gorbachev's reforms and disintegration of the Soviet Union. What precedes it is very unsuccessful war in Afghanistan. So the Russian Empire and then the Soviet state was built on war. You don't end in the possession of one-sixth of entire Earth by being a peacenik. <laughs> you, you, you do that by having huge military and fighting a lot of wars. But it's a double-edged sword of major, major transformation from the 20th century that taking place as the result of the wars that were not going Russian way. And we don't know yet how this war will end, but there is a lot of reporting on the growing crisis within Russia itself, political crisis in particular. Yeah, and those crises we've known about for a long time now, at least since the beginning of this full-scale invasion. In the book you write, the war buried Russia's hopes of becoming a new global center in the multipolar world envisioned by Russian politicians and diplomats since the 1990s. It exposed weaknesses not only in Russia's clearly overrated and overpromoted army, but also in its economic potential. So do you feel like Russia is still considered a great power in the world? This is an excellent question. It looks like we are in uncharted waters in terms of defining what great power status is. Historically, the great power status combined at least two factors. First, the economic power and then the military power. And that was certainly the story of the Cold War. Two superpowers, the United States, the strength of the army after the Second World War is, of course, that of the superpower. It wasn't that before World War II, the chunk of the world economic pie. I don't remember now, but maybe approaching 40% or something like that. So huge, huge. And then you look also at the Soviet Union. Economically, is not as great, but still 50s and 60s, a major, a major power with a huge army. If you look at Russia today, of course, there are different ways of measuring economic potential, but it's not even within the 10 most powerful economies of the world. But nothing really happened since the end of Cold War in terms of the nuclear arsenal. If you judge by nuclear, Russia is a superpower. It's a giant. 
If you judge by the economic potential, it's not exactly a dwarf, but it's certainly below average. And that creates a sort of disbalance between the economic power and military power that I don't know whether we experienced in the recent history. So Russia remains to be a nuclear superpower while becoming a second-rate state, certainly economically and also in terms of its political standing. You have a leader for whom there is a arrest warrant issued by the international organizations. It's not something that really helps political standing of any country, Russia or otherwise. You have an army that was proud to be called the second most powerful army in the world, And in Ukraine, they're saying now only half-jokingly that it turned out to be the second most powerful army in Ukraine, which is sort of true. So the war started in 2014 with the idea of Putin really turning Russia into one of the poles on the international arena. The model was multipolar world in which Russia imagined itself on par with not just the United States, but with Europe and with China, Europe to the west, China to the east. To achieve that goal, they knew in Russia that they needed to mobilize resources of not just Russia, but of the post-Soviet space. And any project of doing that, and they were trying really hard, would be incomplete without the second largest Soviet republic being part of that project. This is one of the reasons why we have this bloody war in Ukraine today. Because the war started in 2014 over stopping Ukraine's drift toward Europe. If Ukraine would sign and eventually it signed association agreement with European Union, it would not be able to join the Eurasian Union that Putin was busy creating. So that's the war. The war about the expansion or at least about maintaining control over the post-Soviet space as the Russian sphere of influence. So I maybe disappoint someone. It's not about NATO. And it's not about threat to Russia posed by the United States, but it's about Russia's attempt to hold on to the imperial space and, in that sense, rise to the level of one of the poles in the modern world. And we see now that certainly the result is horrible for Ukraine, but it's also pretty devastating for Russia and its ambitions. But I still feel like it's more than just having the Eurasian Economic Union on the table. I mean, it feels like Russia has always wanted to have the option to eventually reunify with Ukraine, to eventually invade Ukraine. To the extent that NATO has mattered, it feels like it's less about the danger from the military alliance than the fact that if Ukraine and Georgia became part of that military alliance, it would mean that Russia no longer had the option on the table to eventually unify with those countries once again into a larger empire. I mean, am I overstating that? Well, you may be right, because actually whatever we think is impossible, and then suddenly Putin comes and tries to to, to accomplish it. So it can be the case indeed. But generally, what I see in historical perspective, Russia in 1991, Boris Yeltsin's Russia, decided that old-fashioned empire didn't represent a good economic model for the metropolis. 
So in that sense, they just followed in the steps of the French and Britain, who thought that at the end of the day, they decided that economically they're better off without other dependencies, because now in the second half of the 20th century, the empire cost more than it was bringing into the coffers. And that was the decision of Yeltsin to let the Soviet Union go. But it was replaced with the idea of the Commonwealth of Independent States, where it would be a much cheaper way of really mobilizing resources and keeping control over that territory. And that's basically what Putin was trying to do with the Eurasian Union. Take resources and then left local governments to think about how to pay for the hospitals, how to support the pensioners, and so on and so forth, so that it wouldn't be Moscow's headache. So a classic post-colonial type of policy. Again, nothing particularly Russian, nothing particularly new. But once these attempts fail, what you see first annexation of the Crimea, now legal annexation of the territories in Ukraine that Putin doesn't even control, which completely mind-blogging. So basically, that would support what you suggested. I, I don't think that that was the plan, but that's a consolation prize and at least plan B or plan C, sort of saving face in the conditions of the war or conflict or project where you can't achieve your ultimate goal. So we've been obviously talking about your work in studying Ukrainian history and recent events in Ukraine, but your two previous books that you've written have actually been about nuclear weapons and nuclear technology just in general. The most recent, before your current book, was Atoms and Ashes, A Global History of Nuclear Disasters, and before that it was Nuclear Folly, which was about the Cuban Missile Crisis. I found that your work on nuclear technology and the dangers of nuclear technology really intersected with what's going on in Ukraine, especially within the past few days. Because Russia has recently evacuated some towns near the Zaporizhia power plant. So I'd like to get your thoughts on how the war has actually confirmed some of your fears about nuclear power. Well, indeed, I find myself, and that happened before maybe a couple of times, that I think that I write history. <laughs> I write about future, or at least some version of some form of future. And the Cuban Missile Crisis, again, the idea was that we kind of turned the page on the situation where there can be nuclear brinkmanship, and it was history. There was a warning as well on my part. I was saying that, well, we are in uncharted waters now with much more nuclear states, but I couldn't imagine that we are so close to the actual challenge of the situation that would be compared again and again to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And in Adams and Ashes, I look there at six largest nuclear disasters, one of them Three Mile Island, and then, of course, Chernobyl, Fukushima, but some earlier ones as well. And the argument there is that we as societies, as expert communities, certainly learn from all of those disasters. There is a learning curve. And we try to deal with the causes that produced each of those disasters. And all of them are sort of unique to a degree, which actually is a good thing, says that we are capable of learning from our own mistakes, if not mistakes of others. But that was also a worrisome sign that the nature, the technologies always come up with a new way of making nuclear power dangerous. And the moment the book was published, a new threat emerged that no one could actually foresee. And that's war came to the nuclear sites. 
the first day of the war, the Chernobyl nuclear power plant was taken over by Russians. A few days later, the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. And we are now waiting or expecting a major Ukrainian counteroffensive starting exactly in the area where the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is. The world turned out completely unprepared to deal with these two crises. The IEA, International Atomic Energy Agency, had no protocols to what to do in the conditions of the war. The plus minus 200 members of the Ukrainian National Guard at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant laid down their weapons, didn't fight. The National Guard, Ukrainian National Guard, the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant tried to fight back. So there was a battle on the nuclear power plant. Russians used missiles, hit a number of buildings. One of the buildings caught fire. Did they do the right thing? Were the people at Chernobyl, were they saving the world and their country? Were they traitors to their country? The government opened an investigation. We don't know the answer. So we don't have protocols. None of the 440 reactors that exist today in the world actually were designed to deal with the conditions of the war. We don't know what the behavior should be. We are unprepared institutionally to deal with those issues. The International Atomic Energy Agency is associated with the United Nations, where Russia is on the Security Council. The job security of the Secretary General of the organization depends on the Russian vote. The paycheck of many people under him depend on the Russian contribution to the coffers of the organization. No wonder for close to two weeks after the Chernobyl takeover, they would not even spell word Russia. I thought that maybe in the computers or something like that, there was some misfunction. They couldn't spell the name. They were making statements expressing their concern and calling on both sides to exercise caution. So only in September of 2022, they issued a clear demand that, okay, Russia has to leave the nuclear website. And the same sort of things we have now. The Russians started the evacuation of the population from the city of Enerhodar, which is terrible on a number of levels. One of them, if people or most of the people live in Enerhodar, who will be there watching six overheated reactors? They all shut down, but they need electricity, they need water supply. Uh, not to turn into Fukushima type of a situation, right? All Fukushima reactors were shut down, but then there was no electricity because of the tsunami. Now there can be no electricity because of the war happening in the region. So that's certainly a major concern. And it's not about blaming this individual here or there or this organization here or there, but we are completely unprepared to this situation. We don't know what to do. And last summer, I published a piece by invitation in The Economist, ending with a phrase that, well, until we figure out how to protect existing reactors, I don't think we are in a position to build any new ones, because it is a threat. And I really hope that the next few weeks don't bring any bad nuclear news from Ukraine. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's such a great book. Let me mention it one more time. It's The Russo-Ukrainian War, The Return of History. It's definitely something that anyone who's focused on what's happening in Ukraine right now, it's an absolute must-read to be able to understand the events and to put them into historical context. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for writing the book. 
Thank you for having me, Justin. It was a pleasure. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends, because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.